Amen. Amen. I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 3. You're going to find that, if you're not sure where that is, you're going to find that right near the end of your New Testament, Hebrews chapter 3. And it's interesting, and I don't know if we did this on purpose. Uh, Josh, I'm going to assume you do everything on purpose. You're going to feel some dissonance today as we walk through this text, in light of all that we just proclaimed and declared with confidence, our text today is really going to press in on that confidence, and it's going to cause us to ask some really important questions. Uh, and, I, and I don't apologize for that. From time to time, that's exactly what we need to do. Um, so as you're turning in your Bible to Hebrews chapter 3, let me ask you just a really practical question. Don't raise your hand, but I wonder how many of us in this room have carbon monoxide detectors in our home. Don't, ins- don't raise your hand. But if you would have not risen your hand, if you don't have one, listen, just listen. Carbon monoxide detectors are actually very important for a couple of reasons. First of all, carbon monoxide can kill you, which, by the way, is really the only reason you need. But that's the reason number one. Carbon monoxide can kill you. Car- reason number two why you really need to get a detector in your house is that carbon monoxide is kind of untraceable. I mean, really, it's very difficult to trace. So if you're lying in your bed at night and carbon monoxide begins to fill your house, you're in a very dangerous place. You need an alarm that's going to that's gonna trigger, that's going to go off, that's going to say, get up, get out of bed. You don't know it, but you're in a very dangerous position. Your alarm might not say that exactly, but that's what it's saying as that beeping goes off. Carbon monoxide's a silent killer. So if you don't have one of those, you probably should leave the service today and stop by Home Depot on your way home. But I want to warn you this morning about a silent killer that is far more dangerous than carbon monoxide, and it's wreaking havoc in our homes and in our churches. It's a silent killer that wiped out an entire generation of Israelites. A silent killer that that the Lord Jesus Christ warns us about urgently with striking language. A silent killer that most of us in this room spend very little time thinking about at all. And it's the silent killer of unbelief. And our text this morning provides us with a sobering warning. However, our text this morning also points us to a divinely instituted alarm. An alarm that can protect our homes and our churches and our families. And so I would, I would plead with you this morning to, to lean in really close and to listen intently and urgently because we need to hear this. I need to hear this. You need to hear this. We're going to read from verses 7 to 19 of Hebrews chapter 3. So if, if you have your Bible open, hear now God's holy, inspired, inerrant living, active word to us today. Hebrews 3, beginning in verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. 
as it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? With whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? To whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? But to those who were disobedient. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I think you could summarize the text we've just read with one phrase. It's a warning against unbelief. A warning against unbelief. And I want to pull out four aspects of of unbelief that we see highlighted in the text. Let's listen closely. The first thing that the author of the Hebrews wants us to see is the culpability of unbelief. I don't know if that's a familiar word anymore or not. Uh, To be culpable is to be responsible. So again, don't raise your hand, but I wonder if you've gotten a speeding ticket before. Sometimes we get pulled over and we want to make an excuse. And so you might say to the officer, officer, I didn't know I was speeding because the speed limit wasn't posted. How can I know if I'm breaking the law if you don't post the speed limit, officer? Now, of course, you go to court, and if you go to court and you discover that 40 meters behind you was a bright, shiny new speed limit sign with 50 posted on it, you're going to be found as culpable, right? You are responsible. Your excuse doesn't hold up. And in the same way, we're reminded here that there will be many who plan to stand before the divine judge, the the God of, of all things, the holy, holy, holy one, who plan to make excuses and to say, God, I'm not responsible I'm not culpable. Here are all of the excuses for why I've done what I've done. And he says, that's not going to hold up. And I want to make sure we hear this correctly, because right now in our minds, we're inclined to think about the outside world. We're inclined to think about, you know, how how unbelievers are going to stand before God. Maybe you're thinking of like Romans 1, for example, where he says that, you know, they won't have an excuse because God's revealed himself through his creation and the things that were made. And so our minds are going there. But Hebrews 3 is not written to the outside world. Hebrews 3 was written for the church. So there are people who are in the church who are planning to make these excuses before God. And the excuses aren't going to hold up because they've seen far too much evidence. Listen to what he says to, in verses 7 to 9. See, these aren't, this isn't for people who are outside. This is for people who have convinced themselves they are inside. And he says, today, if you hear his voice... Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and they saw my works for 40 years. He says, don't you remember that? The Israelites, they they walked with me for 40 years. God says, I parted the Red Sea for them. They walked across on dry land. They watched as it washed over their enemies. I revealed myself to them with the law and, and they saw my Shekinah glory this cloud hovering over the tabernacle, and I led them with a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. I fed them with manna. They tasted. 1 Corinthians 10 says, these are the people who walked through the water, ate of the bread, and yet they didn't enter into the rest of God. They were the insiders. They were the the members. They sat on the committees. Yet in spite of their physical position, In spite of their outward appearance, they were never insiders at all. They were unbelievers and they had hard hearts. And what a horrible day it must have been when the Israelites 
who had seen all that they had seen, stood before the living God and brought forward their excuses. They'd seen too much. No line of defense could ever excuse their unbelief. And the author to the Hebrews would have us see now. If that's true for those who followed Moses, how much more is it true for those of us who have followed the one who is infinitely greater than Moses? Those of us who have who have witnessed the transformation of lives, who have experienced the power of the Spirit of God. Those of us who have, who have seen transformation in life and sat under the authority of His Word and, and, and felt the power, who've tasted of resurrection life. How culpable will we be if we persist in our rebellion, in our unbelief, and then stand before the judge? Puritan George Swinnick once said, It is terrible to fall into hell from the pew. And yet, horror of horrors, many will do just that. And that leads me to the next thing we learn in this text, and that is the prevalence of unbelief. Look again at verse 16. For those who heard, who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Who was it? Was it one of them? Was it two of them? Was it not all those who left Egypt, led by Moses? You see what he's doing there? You ever tried to warn a teenager about something? It's difficult to warn a teenager, isn't it? Because A, they already know everything, right? And B, they're invincible. It's hard to get a warning through. I feel like the author of the Hebrews is, is speaking to us as if we're teenagers. It's like you think you already know everything, don't you? You think you're invincible, don't you? As soon as you heard we were talking about unbelief, you kind of tuned out a little bit, didn't you? You thought, this isn't for me. Who was it again that fell away? Was it one of them, two of them? Wasn't it all of them? Wasn't it a great multitude? Are you taking this lightly, Christian? Do you think I'm overemphasizing how dangerous this is? All of them. All of them heard, all of them saw, yet all of them rebelled. So would you just take it seriously for a moment? Hear me. Don't lull yourself into a place of false security by comparing yourself to all of, all of the Christians around you. Don't do it, because according to the Bible, so many of the people around you who would call themselves Christians will be surprised when they stand before the judge. If your security is found in looking around and saying, well... I, I know that I disregard God in all these ways, but look at that guy. Like, what a mess. He calls himself a Christian. Don't do it. A great number of the people who sat next to you in the pew growing up are lost and deceived, and according to the text, they don't even know it. Jesus said, the gate is narrow. Sorry. If, if it was a gate, this would be narrow, right? The gate is narrow. The way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Elsewhere he explains that many who think that they have found it actually have not. He warns, on that day many will say to me, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And cast out demons in your name? Do many mighty works in your name? And then I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You have to hear that this morning. 
This isn't a rare disorder. It isn't an isolated incident. Many people will see the powerful work of God. Many will even convince themselves that they are followers of Christ. And according to Jesus, many will be wrong. Jesus said that. And the author to the Hebrews here is grabbing hold of us. And he's reminding us of this. Saying, you take this deadly seriously, Christian. Who rebelled? Was it not all who left Egypt and followed Moses? Take care lest you also fall into unbelief. So if you are taking that seriously, then you're probably asking the question, how can we even know then if our faith is real or if we've succumbed to unbelief? That's a good question. To that end, the author of the Hebrews draws our attention to this third thing, the mark of unbelief. Are you in or are you out? Is your faith real or are you self-deceived? Well, here's a diagnostic question. Are you walking in obedience or disobedience? Just to be clear, that question doesn't simply spring from my imagination. It's not as if I'm trying to say, well, how can we figure this out? Maybe this. No, no, that stems directly from what Jesus said. So in Matthew 7, we looked at that warning. Jesus said, many will say to me, I thought I was in, and they will be wrong. Right before that warning, here's what he said. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, who will then? But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. If you are content to say, Lord, Lord, on Sunday, but then to walk in patterns of habitual rebellion and disobedience Monday to Saturday, if you sing with hands raised, Lord, Lord, on Sunday, and then you gossip with your spouse on the drive home, if you declare, Lord, Lord, on Sunday, and you say, God, you you have it all, You, you have authority over my life, but then you go home and there's parts of your life that you have boxed up, and you say, God can't speak to this then you are not saved. You're not saved. You're spiritually blind, living in rebellion, walking straight into disaster, and the author of the Hebrews loves you too much to let you persist in this. Jesus loves you too much to let you persist in this. And Jesus says, listen, many of you are doing just that. That was the case for the Israelites in the wilderness. We read in verse 10, God says, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. How was unbelief manifested? What was the mark? How How could we know? It was manifested in this perpetual disobedience. And I don't want you to hear that wrongly. I don't want you to walk away saying, well, then I must be an unbeliever because I fall short every day. Listen, we all fall short every day. The mark of unbelief is is persistent rebellion. It is that habit. It is that saying, God, this sin here, you can't touch it. You can't speak to it. I don't trust you. It is when God says, don't go this way, and you say, sorry, God, I don't trust you. I'm going to go this way. That is the mark of unbelief. And they were so crafty in their self-deceit that they managed to convince themselves that God's ways would actually lead to ruin, which is one of the things we do in our unbelief. John Calvin wisely warns us here. He observes, unbelief thence draws weapons. So he's, you know, um, 
he's picturing unbelief almost as like a villain. So unbelief draws weapons, picks up a sword and engines to try and put faith to flight. The aim of all of its efforts being to make us think that God is adverse and hostile to us. That's what unbelief wants you to do. It wants you to think that I can't trust him. And thus, instead of hoping for any assistance from him, your heavenly father who loves you, who knows what is right, who has a plan for you that is good, who has eternal joy for you, instead of hoping for any assistance from him, unbelief makes us dread him as a deadly foe. And so you ask, well, is that me? Well, let me just ask you a diagnostic question. Is there any area of your life where God is, you see it clearly in the word, You see it. God is saying, go this way. But you have convinced yourself that this way will not lead to joy and happiness. So you're going this way. That is it. That is unbelief. That is the evidence. It's the mark. You're in a perilous place. The Israelites stood on the outskirts of the promised land. They were looking in, but they're seeing it's going to be hard. There are enemies. There are obstacles. God says, it's okay. I know there are enemies and obstacles. I'm going to overcome them. I'm going to go before you just like I always have And my plan for you is right in there. And they looked in and they said, no, I don't trust you. I don't think that your plan is right. It's it's Adam and Eve in the garden. Did God really say? Maybe he is withholding from us. That's unbelief. And that leads us to the last lesson the author of the Hebrews would have us see. And that is the cost of unbelief. We find that in the final verse of our text this morning. So we see that they were unable to enter because of their unbelief. God had prepared a place for them, led them right to the outskirts, demonstrated miraculous victory after miraculous victory over the course of their history. They saw the challenges ahead, but God said, it's okay, I'm with you, go. Believe me, trust me, follow me, go. They were right there sitting in the seats week after week, right there, but unable to enter. Lord, Lord, did we not follow you out of captivity? Did we not walk through the parted Red Sea on the dry land? Didn't we see your glory over the tabernacle? And God said to them, I I never knew you. Now, I know a number of Christians who worry about their retirement savings. I know a number of Christians who fret about the state of our country and the direction that we're headed in. But according to this text, I ought to know more Christians who are thinking urgently about what God will say to them when they stand before the judgment seat. But pastor, you object. We hold to the doctrines of grace. We believe in, for example, the doctrine of predestination. That before the foundation of the world, God set his people apart. And those whom he foreknew, he predestined. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. Pastor, we believe in the perseverance of the saints. That those whom God has called, he won't lose a single one. He will hold me fast. We sang it, Pastor. You taught us these things, Pastor. To which I would say, yes, yes, all of that is true. If you are in Christ, then God is holding on to you and he will see you through to the end. Yes, sing that with gusto. Treasure that in your heart if you are in Christ. But are you in Christ? 
That's what this text is putting before us. Are you in Christ? He says in verse 14, For we have come to share in Christ. But then he qualifies. If, right, so he's applying this to the group. He's just saying, he will hold us fast. But then he followed up with verse 3. If, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. The warning of Hebrews 3 exists because Old Testament and New, people have convinced themselves that they were standing in a secure position when in fact they were not. People who declare with their mouths, I surrender to Jesus, all to Jesus I surrender. And yet when you look at their hands, you see with their white clenched fists the sin that they won't let go of. Is that you? What a horrible thing it would be to fall into hell from the pew. So hear me. Hear this warning in Hebrews. Hear Jesus' warning from Luke 7. The door to heaven is closed for you as long as you persist in your unbelief. And your faithful attendance can't crack it open. Your Bible reading won't move it an inch. You can volunteer faithfully in the nursery and the setup crew for the rest of your life, but it won't open up that gate. There's only one way to enter into the rest, and his name is Jesus. And if you would enter, then you need to surrender completely to him. You need to believe that his plan is, is better. You need to evidence that faith by letting go of all of that sin and following him wherever he would lead you. And hear me, Jesus died on the cross for the sins of hypocrisy and unbelief and everything else that you've been holding on to that's keeping you from inheriting that rest. Jesus has paid for it and he is offering to take that sin from you today and to bear it on the cross in your place. This text suggests that some people came here today thinking, I hope somebody from out there will come in so that they can be saved. And in reality, it's you. It's you. How can it be that so many people, according to Jesus, that so many people will stand before the gate in shock and awe that it won't open? That they were never truly in relationship with him? How does a person live their entire life oblivious to the reality that their heart is in fact hard. How do we battle this silent killer? Well, thankfully, we don't need to end on that note today because the author to the Hebrews has pointed us to an alarm. And so I want to point you to that alarm with everything that is in me this morning. Look with me again at verses 12 to 13. Did you spot it? Let me read it again. He says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So here the author of the Hebrews points us to an alarm that I tell you we are guilty of neglecting in the North American church. Here he points us to the keeping power of community. So as careful Bible readers, we understand it's ultimately God who keeps us in the faith, right? We already quoted from Romans 8, that glorious passage. God says that those whom he foreknew, 
Be glorified. In God's eyes, it is done. He won't lose a single one who is his. Yes. And yet, he calls us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. He calls us in verse 12 of this passage to take care lest we fall. So how do we hold this tension? Has God done it? Or do we do it? John Piper, I think, captures this tension so well. He says this in a sermon. He says, God keeps me by enabling me to do self-keeping things. And I must do them. I must do these things. He says, God keeps me by, by empowering me to do the things that he has called me to do. It's the mystery of, of God's word. We see it all over the place. We can't do this in our own strength, and yet God calls us to. It's like that, you know, he puts this bar on us, and we can't push the bar. But as we push with whatever feeble strength we have, he puts his strong hands on the bar, and he lifts. And this text highlights one of the ways that we need to push. One of the things that we do, these keeping things that keep us in the fold. And the author of the Hebrews points us to the keeping power of community. But before I go any further, I do want to point something out, and this is very important. And this is a corporate thing that I want us all to see together. Here it is. Not all communities have keeping power. I want you to hear that. Don't, not just, don't assume that because I'm in community, I'm going to be kept. No. Remember, the Israelites, remember that whole group? They were in community. And all of them failed to enter the rest of God. And he's writing this letter to the Hebrews. They're living in community, and yet there's a whole slew of them who are preparing to reject Christ and to return to Judaism. So not all communities have keeping power. Well, what's the recipe then? What's this particular ingredient that's going to that's gonna give keeping power to this community here at Redeemer? Did you see it? It's in verse 13. Let's look there again. It says, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Exhortation. That's, that's the ingredient that we're going to need if this community here is going to have keeping power to guard us from this silent killer of unbelief. To exhort is to speak with urgency. It's to make an appeal. It is to encourage. Exhorting, practically speaking, means pointing out the sin in my life when I don't see it. Exhorting means picking me up off the floor when I'm so overwhelmed and pointing me to the mercy of God. Because here's the problem. I can't see my blind spot. That's why we call it a blind spot. I can't see it. But you can. You can see it. You are the divinely appointed alarm that God has put in my life to guard against the deadly threat of unbelief. So not all communities have keeping power, but we want this community to have keeping power. So how are we going to cultivate that? What are some things we're going to need to put in place here to have keeping power in this community? I want to very quickly point to three things as we conclude. First, the keeping power of community requires proximity. So if you legitimately want this, if you legitimately want to be kept safe by the community, then you need people who are close enough to you to see those blind spots. You need people who are close enough to you to catch a whiff of the stench. That something's wrong right there. You need that. Proverbs 26 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. See, it's better to have my sin pointed out by my friend 
so that I can be offended and then I can repent of it. That's better than having my sin pointed out by the judge of all things when my time for repentance is over. Unless you are perfect, and you're not, right? None of us here is. Unless you are perfect, you need people who are close enough to your marriage to point out that the way that you talk to each other is not right. You need someone close enough to your personal life to point out that you've got a, a pride problem, a, a gossip problem, a pornography problem. You've got some sin problems. You need people who are close enough to your parenting to point out that you are modeling some destructive things for your children that are not going to help them as they grow in their walk with the Lord. You need people to point out those things in your blind spots. And you need people to remind you of the mercy of God when you're being too hard on yourself. You need people who can scoop you up off the floor and direct your eyes to the cross when you've lost sight of grace and you're trying to run in your own strength. You need all of that. And many of us don't have that. Many of us refuse to let anyone get close enough. And while that's a good strategy to live a conflict-free, comfortable life, it's a lousy strategy for entering the kingdom of heaven. And it suggests to me that you don't take this warning very seriously at all. Making friends is hard, pastor, you say. It's hard letting people in. Swimming lessons are hard. But drowning is deadly. So we put our kids through swimming lessons. Well, the threat of unbelief is real too. And if you want to experience the keeping power of community, then you need proximity. And if this community is going to have keeping power, not only will it need proximity, but we're also going to need courage. Courage will be needed for everyone involved in the process. First of all, it takes courage to put yourself in a position of exposure. It takes courage to open up the door and say, come on in, there's a mess inside. Right? It takes courage to make yourself vulnerable, to tell somebody, I'm struggling here, here, and here, to tell somebody, my marriage is a C minus at best, to tell someone, I don't have a clue how to teach my kids the Bible. It takes courage to make the call and say, hey, I need you to pray for me right now because I'm about to go down a road of sin again. That takes courage. It takes courage to accept a word of correction without swinging back in self-defense, doesn't it? It takes courage. And that leads to the flip side. It takes courage to give a word of rebuke, doesn't it? Boy, it takes courage to take a relationship that is in a good spot and to say something that might make that relationship struggle for a season. It takes courage. If you've ever given a word of rebuke, then you know that Pastor Craig is right when he says that hurt people hurt people. Right? When our sin is exposed, we get nasty. And we say some things and we do some things. And if you're going to point to somebody's sin, expect them to swing back at your chin and expect to get the silent treatment for a month. And you say, well, why on earth would we do that to ourselves? Why would we hold out our chin when we know full well that a blow is coming? And I'd say it's because we have courage. Because we believe it's our responsibility to warn our brothers and sisters about the sin that's going to lead to their ruin. George Swinnick once wrote, although my patients might become angry when I probe their infected wounds, they will thank me when they recover. If I am afraid to tell people about their sins, I murder their souls. Let me ask you a question. And again, answer this honestly. Have you ever spoken a hard word to a brother or sister in Christ? Have you ever done it? 
Have you ever seen something and thought, that needs to be addressed, I'm going to do it? If the answer to that question is no, I would say you are either lacking in courage or you are lacking in proximity, and perhaps both. And that's a problem, because your brothers and sisters need you. We need you. If we want to experience the keeping power of community here, then we're going to need proximity, we're going to need courage. But we're going to need one more thing, because if we only had proximity and courage, we'd be really good at rebuking one another, but there wouldn't be any change in this place. There'd just be lots of pointed fingers and hurt feelings. We need a third thing that brings it all together, and that is we need love. An exhortation without love feels like an attack. But when a person who has demonstrated their love for you tells you something that hurts, you realize this obviously needed to be said. Right? If my enemy had said that to me, then I could write this off as, as malicious. But my friend just said that to me, which means I need to listen. Why would they say it? Why would they, why would they put our relationship in this kind of strain? Why would they do it? Because they love you. Because that friend is more committed to your eternal joy than they are to your present happiness. Because they're more committed to the glory of God in your life than they are to your feelings. One pastor notes, love does not equal unconditional affirmation. Love entails the relentless pursuit of what is for our good. And our good is always growth in godliness. See, true love has the hard talks. And so let me segue here into a, a bit of a call. So this week we're rolling out this Life Together program. And I want you to hear this as someone who's an under-shepherd of this flock. And I'm going to stand before the Lord and give an account for this congregation. But can I just tell you, I really, really, truly believe this little program is not the solution, but it's going to be really helpful. I really believe that. And if you are able, I would really admonish you, encourage you to take advantage of this. Here's what's going to happen. Right? We're not running out this program because we need another midweek thing. We're not running out this program because we want to entertain the kids. We're not running out this program because we want something interesting to put into the annual report. We're running this out because we truly believe that every single person in this congregation has blind spots. Every single person in this congregation needs what we see here in Hebrews 13. They need exhortation. They need community. They need people in their life who love them and who see them and who can hold them accountable. And so this is a way that we can try to cultivate a bit of that. People are going to see you sitting at the table with your kids, trying to wrangle them in. They're going to watch as you struggle and you lose your temper. They're going to walk with you. right? They're not going to shake their finger. They're going to walk with you. They're, they're going to see as, as you're up there and we hear testimonies. You're going to hear from your brothers and sisters about struggles that they've faced and what God has done to overcome and struggles that they're still facing and how they need support. You're going to hear all of that. right? We're going to take off the mask. We're going to know each other. We're going to pray in groups of two and three. You're going to pray out loud with another adult. What's that like? Some of you don't know. right? We're going to enter in together and we're going to walk together and I believe that this is going to help. And I would urge you to lean in there is a silent killer that plagues our churches, but God has not left us without an alarm. He's given us this messy, glorious, awkward, beautiful thing called the church. I need you to sound the alarm when I go astray. You need me to point out your sin when you don't see it. We need each other, and we have each other. So let's thank God for the keeping power of community, and let's lean in as if our eternal souls are at stake. Because they are. 
They are. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your great love for us. I thank you that you are a good father, which means that you know when we need a soft, gentle word of encouragement, and you know when we need a firm warning. And Lord, today in your text, we've, we've been brought to a firm warning, and I believe that's because of your great love for your people. And if there's anyone here today who is sitting under that warning and is realizing that they thought they were in, but they've been out for a lifetime, they've been out. I pray that today you would show them that there is salvation for them in Christ. I pray that today would be a day of repentance and renewal and that we would see lost people come into the fold. Lost people who thought that they were found people before they came to church today. Lost people who, who now when they stand before the gate will not hear, I never knew you. So God, I pray that you would do that. I pray that you do that work and I pray that you'd help us as a people to walk together. Lord, and we confess that we fail at this so badly Lord, so many hard talks that we haven't had. So many brothers and sisters that were struggling that we didn't reach out to, that we didn't run to. So many times when we didn't want to take a blow on the chin, so we bit our tongue. Father, forgive us, and Father, enable us to have the courage, the love, to get close, and to apply the, the healing gospel, the powerful word of God to the lives of our brothers and sisters in Christ. So, Lord, we ask for all of this. We can't manufacture it in and of ourselves. We need you to work. We need your spirit to move. So, please, would you? We ask in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Worship team, would you lead us?